You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, your joyologist, Trisha Huffman. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives, asking them all the questions about how they've gotten to where they are today and how they get through the day today. Because I believe that our feelings of joy, success, fulfillment, worth, being enough are not out there somewhere. Once I get to do this, be this, have this job, this weight, this person in my life, whatever it is, then I will feel all of these things. If we keep putting it outside of ourselves, we won't feel it. It is up to us to claim it for ourselves. On today's episode, I have Mishka Shubali. He is a very interesting man who has lived quite a life already. He's the author of seven best-selling Kindle books and the memoir, I Swear I'll Make It Up to You. He's traveled the world as a songwriter, a storyteller, a comedian. He teaches at Yale. He, I mean... He's a speaker. He's got a lot of things going on, but his journey has been very interesting and I would not say smooth. And right now, also, by the way, he has a free Audible original for the month of May. It's free called Cold Turkey, How to Quit Drinking by Not Drinking. (laughs) All right. So let's just get into the episode and hear Mishka's story. It's an entertaining one and an interesting one. So... Yeah, from looking at your website and different things, you've got a lot going on. So let's just start with which I love because it means you're putting you put yourself out there. You do stuff that you want to do. Yes. See if it's going to work out or not, if you like it or not. So let's start like let's go back to like maybe high school or like what was life growing up for you? And when you were like in high school, did you have a like, I know what I'm going to do? Or were you just like, in high school and you know like I feel like high school is a time of yeah formative time for many of us and it's like either trying to fit in or stand out or both and you know parents and pressures you have to go to college or this and that so what was like what was that happening at that time for you the um well this is good because we'll start in darkness and then follow like the hero's journey towards the light you know right the um I I hated high school I um I was in New Hampshire I was in this like you know sort of like small white you know little white trash town and uh, it just seemed sort of like, you know, really miserable and really dead end there. And um, it's funny because every once in a while there'll be like, you know, some challenge on Facebook and people are posting like their senior pictures from high school and stuff like that. And um, it's always weird for me because there are some people who like seem like they peaked in high school or just or that it was it was just the best of times for them. That they, like everything was so fun and so cool. Right. And uh, yeah, no, I hated high school. The a big break. I, you know, I, I was like, that's when I discovered alcohol and, uh, and high school was also when I learned how to fight and sort of the positive thing, I guess, of like sticking up for myself when I was picked on. But then I, you know, I got in a lot of trouble because of that. But my, my big break also came in high school where for some reason I took my PSAT early and then I got a flyer um, from a small liberal arts school in Massachusetts saying, oh, you can leave high school early and start a college program early. And I was like, yo, I'm definitely doing this. <laughs> so I, I got my shit together and I applied and, um, and I got in. So I left after two years of high school and wow. started at 15. And um, I mean, Wait, did you just say at 15? Yeah. 
You left high school at 15. Yeah. To go to this. <laughs> okay. So I'm guessing too, at that time, you're not like, I'm going to go to college and this is what I want to do with my life. You're just like, this is a ticket out of high school. I will do whatever I can. And I'm going to go to the school and get out of here. Exactly. Exactly. Like it, anywhere is better than here. But in, you know, in hindsight, it was, um, it was something that absolutely sort of opened the world up to me and opened, opened me up to the world. You know, I had uh, some fairly provincial attitudes uh, coming from small towns and, uh, and then, you know, being at a liberal arts school in the Northeast, you know, sort of like with a rich history of diversity and sort of like celebrating this wild freak show that is humanity there's, you know, the, the, you have to evolve pretty quickly. Um, and so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, you know, I still like some of my best friends now are still the people that I met, you know, there. The dark side is there was a school shooting the first semester that I was there. One of my classmates, a kid I was on the basketball team with got an assault rifle and shot six people at our school, killed a classmate of mine, killed the teacher. Wow. And, uh, I ended up having to testify in his murder trial and it was just, so it was one of those things where it's like, you're a kid, you're a kid, you're a kid, you're an adult. Yeah. And earlier than most. Yeah. Too, Cause you yeah. were younger then. Yeah. And then the day, uh, the day after the shooting at my school, I found out my parents were getting a divorce and then like layering, six layering it on. <laughs> yes. And then like six months later we lost the house and uh, so it was just like this tremendous, you know, upheaval and reversal in what my life had been like to, you know, to what it became. And yeah, I mean, that, that kicked off a long, bad, weird, hard time where, you know, where we were just incredibly poor and really struggling. Um, but uh, I remember, I remember one point it was, I mean, this is years later my mother and my sister and I were sharing a one bedroom apartment in Boulder, Colorado. And there was like one bed and then one person slept on the couch and I was sleeping on the floor and there was a rainstorm and there wasn't like the one leak or the two leaks. It was like, we had every pot and pan out to catch like 11 leaks, you know, and just the sounds of the drops falling in the, you know. and you know, you can, you can cry in that situation or, you can laugh, you know, and we just, I, we just stayed up all night, you know, sort of like talking to each, you know, calling out to each other from different rooms and laughing about, you know, our, and every once in a while, somebody would get up to empty up, you know, a pot or a pan was about to overflow. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was like really the sort of formative years for me that, that shaped a lot of my sensibility. So when you're in the college, did you graduate the liberal arts college? Was it a a four year program? Um, they had an option to go there for four years. I, I went for two years. I got my associate's degree and then I transferred to the University of Colorado. Um, my father was a successful physicist. So it was sort of understood that us kids would take the sort of math and science route. So that's what I went into it doing. And I had like physics and chemistry and I was like, man, this is, this is not, <laughs> not my, my jam. And, uh, and I came out of there like a theater major or something like that. Yeah. You know? That's an interesting, I mean, I think so many people, and I definitely have the experience of like, you know, you get these types of jobs because they're safe and secure. Like I had that, but I didn't have like, you need to take the same path as I have. But yeah, I can't imagine that of being like, just because your dad's a successful physicist, like, of like, 
Oh, yeah. So then like, of course, my kids like, so yeah, like, did you early on, like, did you struggle with that? Or did you like accept that for a while? Like, yeah, so I'm just gonna be a physicist like my dad. And then not until you like got into it. We're like, no, this isn't for me. Or did you, was that like a thing for years, like struggling or feeling like I have to do my parents expect this of me, my dad expects this of me? Like, did you resent that? Or did you just think like, yeah, that's my direction until you like were in those classes and were like, yeah, no. You know, there were things about I mean, I think with everybody, with all of us, with our families, there are things that as kids, we just accept that that's how a family works. And then it's like later in life, you're like, oh man, that, that's really weird. You know, the, so we, my family, like both my parents were farm kids from Northern Saskatchewan. And, uh, and so and I found from spending time in Saskatchewan, the further North you go, it's like, you're going back in time. <laughs> so they, they, you know, they had sort of like a very, you know, my mom was like, she was the first first person in her family to get a college degree, and, and she was a, a photographer at the newspaper, and she kept her maiden name when she got married. So she was like kind of like a progressive feminist. Yeah. But also in our family, you know, we sort she sort of defaulted to this thing of like my dad being the you know he was he was the golden child when he was a kid, and then the family was very centered around him. So it was just sort of understood that us kids would do what he had done, you know. Um, and yeah, the, when I was at Simon's Rock, when I was, you know, away at college, the, that quickly went out the window. You know, I, I sort of had, I had a couple of epiphanies. I, I took a short story writing class there. And my, you know, my mom had always been deeply invested in, in writing and literature and storytelling, like read to us a ton when we were kids. And I really sort of came to life in that writing class. Um, you know, acting and writing were the two things that sort of excited me. And then from there, I got into like William Burroughs and uh, Charles Bukowski, which nobody should ever read Charles Bukowski, particularly if you're a 15 year old young man. But I just, I, I guess one good thing that I got from those authors was I just understood like I, I need to live a life without compromise. I need to just go for exactly, I need to do exactly what I want to do and have no backup plan and just just, just live an epic life. Just, you know, sort of like do everything, you know, and I've definitely lost faith in that different points throughout my life, but I never, there's a lot of things that I, a lot of truths that I sort of gleaned when I was a teenager that have steered me well, you know, through life. And when you had that epiphany in that way of like, this is how I'm going to live my life how did that transfer to then like to your parents, especially if they were in this position of you following in your dad's footstep. And then one day you show up like, you know, sort of I'm doing what calls to me and that's it. Was that a struggle like for you to, cause I feel like that in my own life where sometimes I have this like, Oh, this is what I want. But then it's like, I'm cool on my own, but then like telling other people. And sometimes it's hardest to tell the people that like you love you the most because they're either trying to keep you like safe in some box or they think they know you better than you. And like, you know, it's like, it's challenging to grow no matter what. And then sometimes like our loved ones make it even harder. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, also we live in a culture where, you know, women are programmed to like not hurt anyone's feelings, to not inconvenience anyone. Like God forbid your voice be too loud, you know, And that's one of the things that, you know, I didn't benefit from the sort of programming that like, oh, you need to do what your dad did. But I did benefit from the sort of chauvinism of my family by, you know, understanding that 
you know, sort of subconsciously understanding that because I was a man, I had a voice and I could play a role in choosing my path. Mm. Um, and when my parents split up, my mom was like, fuck it. If you want to be a writer, be a writer. You right. Know? I'm sure that freed up some things. And <laughs> yes, there were, suddenly there were two teams. <laughs> The, um, you know, and my mom had always been, you know, she got her degree, uh, she got her degree in English or, you know, writing journalism, and she had always wanted to be a writer and to sort of travel the world and write about what she'd seen. And, um, and I, you know, I had, I had gifts, you know, I, I was sort of like drafting full narratives when I was six, you know, um, so I knew how to tell a story and like, you know, I was just always, I mean, I remember going to, I remember going to the the library when I was a kid and I was like a sense of delight that I was only able to like replicate later in life by going to the liquor store, <laughs> you know, but like going to the library when I was a kid, you know, it was just like, it was, there was just everything, you know I mean? Like all these just amazing books, you know, I remember like fighting with my, you know, like just one more, one more page, one more chapter, one more paragraph. I'm almost, let me just finish this part, you know, and, and just lying to her in front of her face. Like, Oh no, I'm almost there. <laughs> you know? Right. So like the writing and literature, like that stuff was always something that it was a passion for you. Just maybe didn't even think about it as a possibility for your life because you were so at that time programmed. I'm doing what my dad does. So it wasn't, did it maybe like not even show up as like, oh, I love this, so I'm going to pursue that until you were, like, in the college classes. Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of how possibility functions, is that it, it's, not the, it's, it's not possible until suddenly it's possible, you know? And that was, that was you know, a big thing for, that Simon's Rock did for me, and I'll always be grateful to them for that, is that, you know, they just, it was sort of like, anything is possible. You can do anything. That didn't prove to be true, or at least not immediately, but the I'm in such a weird like charmed position now is you know like when I was I think when I was six I told my mom I mean and it was sort of framed in a very sort of medieval framework because that's what I was into I was into like the medieval Lego and stuff like that and I was like mom I'm gonna be a wandering minstrel I'm gonna be a mm. I, I'm gonna be a physicist like dad because I knew I had to be like him but then on the weekends I'm just gonna go town to town with like a red guitar and play songs for people you know, and, and now that's one of the things that I do, you know, I ended Love up, it. um, and I mean, when I was, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I would tell people, you know, um, I, um, well, I'm going to be a musician. And then if that doesn't pan out, I always have writing to fall back on. And then we would have a laugh because like nobody ever makes money doing those two things, you know? Right. And then, but I, it took a lot longer and it was way harder than I thought it was going to be, but I got there finally, you know, and I guess that's, what's important. It's interesting, you know, to talk to, cause I, I teach now too, um, or I, I did before the coronavirus shit, the, um, and that's, and I love teaching. Um, and I, you know, I wish I, I did it more often, but I'm sort of like doing, you know, so many different things, but that's one of the things that I really try to work on with, um, you know, when I'm talking to, talking to younger writers and particularly when I'm talking to younger women, you know, is to just say like, no, just like fuck the rules. And you know, if there were no restrictions placed on you by your family or money or finances or whatever, what would you do? And then just do that thing. You know, we, we box ourselves in and we sell ourselves short so many times, you know, my, my older sister, she was always like the smart one when we were kids, but uh, because she was the first kid and because she was a woman, she felt more pressure to be the good kid. 
So she went and got her degree in like IT, I think, something that she had zero interest in, did it for a couple of unhappy years and then was like, screw this, I want to, nutrition is what I'm in, it's what fascinates me, is what drives me, is what compels me. And then finally she went back to school and got her, you know, her degree in nutrition. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm writing my first book right now about <laughs> eliminating the word should from your life and how powerful that is. Yes, should because and ought. It is, we, are, we don't even, re- I eliminated the word over 10 years ago when my father passed away and I was just like in a, you know, transitional place of my life and I just was like, I'm done with this word. And I had already lived, I've always been an outspoken independent, believed in myself, you know, went after things. So I did not think I, you know, lived a life of should. So I don't know where it came from. But still, even 10 years later, I have not, I don't use the word should unless I'm like giving this, these sort of examples or like that's a should or that. But the feeling of should, the weight of should still comes up every single day. But like, so I'm, I'm so tuned into it that I'm able to navigate it. But it's like, yeah, what we're taught by our parents, our mentors, society, comparing ourselves to others, the past we need to take, like every single day, we're like put in this place of the should and then like keep like to dig deeper and like, but what do I want? What's the possibility? Like, yeah, imagining the possibilities, like checking in with yourself because we're so often looking outside of ourselves for our own answers and like, well, would that be okay? Is that acceptable? What will people think? How have other people done it? And yeah, we've been like trained to always look outside of ourselves instead of inside of ourselves. That's, I, uh, man, I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> the, I, you know, uh, the other word that I always thought was poison was ought, because for me, it feels like grammatically you're projecting yourself into a future in which you didn't do the thing, you yeah. know, to say like, oh, I, I ought to do the dishes today. You're sort of, it's like, it's you're writing sort of guilt and failure of not doing it into it already. So like I've tried to tell myself, you know, wake up in the morning and just say, I'm not going to do the dishes, you know? And, and then 15 minutes go by. I'm like, dude, you're fucking 43 years old. Wash the damn dishes, you know? And then I do it. But if, yeah. you, if I say I ought or I should, then you, you know, you just put it off until you, yeah. you don't do them and then you hate yourself for it. Yeah, no, you feel terrible. No, I love that you brought up the dishes because that's like one of the examples I always give up because in the example of like life choices, but then also, yeah, procrastination or sometimes like we can't always do what you want because I say the word to replace should is want because then it, you see that everything's your choice. So yeah. with something like that, so like same thing, uh, I'm never like want to do the dishes, but I'm like, oh, I should do the dishes because like they're there and it's this and it's making me feel this, you know, like, uh, like, you know, okay. So I asked myself, well, why would I want to do it? Because I feel better when my house is clean. I feel like when, feel good when things are, you know, organized, when things are put away, whatever, like, okay, so now I want to do the dishes. So it's like just even asking yourself more questions or sometimes I'm like, at, same thing. Like maybe it's like, yeah, you know what? I maybe should do the dishes cause they're dirty, but I'm also really tired. So I'm going to go to bed and I don't want to do the dishes right now. And so also then I feel good with my choice because I've seen it's a choice and not like now I'm so lazy because I didn't do the dishes and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel bad and I'm going to have shame and guilt and all these things because I didn't do the dishes. It's just like, no, I saw that's the choice. And so, yeah, it's like seriously that I've taken like the word out into always transforming it to seeing like it's your choice. Anyway, that's enough about me and my show. Let's get my no, I love it. Keep going. I mean, this is great. It's like, I'm, I'm like taking notes here, you know, the, no, I mean, I, I feel the same way the, for me, the should thing is it's writing, you know, that like I should write today or I should be writing more. Or I should post that piece. And then, um, and part of that came out of like sort of just 
you know, I, I ended up getting my master's degree. And so I was in school for a long time. And so it was sort of this, you know, this culture in academia where you, doing that work is a burden, you know, and then, you know, being out in the world, I didn't write for seven years after getting my master's degree. And, um, you know, so I was just like working as a bar back and in bars and like doing odd jobs and stuff like that. And then people were like, Oh my God, you get to write. You're so lucky. Like, I wish I had time to write. And then I was like, Oh, Oh my God, I'm coming from like a really shitty place of privilege where this, I, I mean, I have been given, I've been given a gift. I was born with sort of innate ability to tell a story. And then I was fortunate enough to have, you know, a mother who supported me and be able to go to school for it and develop that, found a way to make money at it. Like, I'm so fortunate. And instead, I'm like, alas, I must write. You know, it's like, dude, get over it, you know? Yeah. So that's me. Yeah. Like anything like that, it's that shifting I should be writing to like, well, why do I want to write? I want to write because I actually love writing because I believe in what I'm going to say because me, that's is also me with my own book. Like every day I'm like, all right, <laughs> yeah, working on the, like this. And then but it feels like the heaviest thing in the world, but it's also the thing I most want to do. So, right. Yeah. Why do I want to do this? So constantly, again, if I'm shifting the language from or even the energy, like once, why do I want? And then that makes me be like, yes, I want to do this. And it, it's I mean, it's funny that we were talking about the dishes, too, because I I was thinking about the been reading these news articles about people who are saying, you know, like who are protesting the shutdown and stuff and like, Oh no, we need to get our haircut and stuff like, and I'm like, you never wrote a book (laughs) because in order to write a book, in order to finish a book, you have to say, I'm not doing the dishes. I'm not taking out the trash. I'm not doing the laundry. The a part of my body that I hate the most is the the where I hair grow hair the fastest and the thickest is like this. I have this like fringe of like gorilla fur on my neck, and I it just I hate it. But when I'm when I'm writing a longer piece and trying to get it done, I just have to say, all right, I'm just gonna let just it's just gonna grow, and I'm just gonna sit here at the computer and do the work, you know, and get it done. So a lot of it is just like, you know, giving yourself permission to, to not do that other stuff. Yeah. that's again, too. It's like, that's what I'm saying. Like, so by, by pausing and the should or the odd or whatever the word is showing up for you, then like looking at your priorities and again, saying it's your choice. And so if I want to do this or like, yeah, what's, you know, it, it, it really, it, it's a helpful check-in for like, what's motivating your choices? Why are you doing things? I should have been listening to this podcast before I was on. Yeah, because I end up talking about shoulds in almost every one. So you can just go back to every conversation. And we usually, no, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to. Anyway, back to you. (laughs) All right. So you end up moving to Colorado to go to to finish college. Yeah. And then, so you end up, you switch to literature. So, yeah, well, when I moved to Colorado, I was like, so a lot of my friends were really into film and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to film school because that's, you know, sort of writing and, um, and theater and having acted more when I was younger and starting to get better at acting, I noticed, um, that I, I, it was no longer sort of like playing pretend on the stage, but I got to a point where I was actually like, when I was, if I was doing a love scene or something like that, I would actually feel like I was falling in love. And then that's confusing for a 15 or 16 year old kid to get up on stage and manufacture real emotions in a fake setting like that. And it was too much for me at that moment. And I was like, I can't be this exposed. Instead, I'm going to be behind the scenes. I'm going to be writing. I, don't, I won't be sort of like under the stage lights going through this transformation. 
So when I went to the University of Colorado, I got accepted into the film program there. But then when I got there, I had to work. I was working 50 hours a week at the Sonic Burger, you know, um, and all the film classes happened at night and all the writing classes happened during the day. Um, and I had to have nights so that I could work. So then I, I went sort of a more uh, short story fiction writing classes. Um, and that's how, how I discovered the writer Lucia Berlin, who ended up being like a real mentor and huge influence on my work. And she really, uh, she, she took me under her, her wing and she told me uh, how dumb I was being at, at several sort of crucial times. And, um, but yeah, so that, you know, that, that weird thing of just like, I, the timing was wrong for taking film classes. That's what sort of steered me towards more literature. Did you ever, did you end up ever like going back to film or like, were you upset like about that choice or were you able to then see like, oh no, this is actually like a perfect, you know, accident, like misscheduling thing that I'm now taking these classes? I definitely, I had some sour grapes about it. You know, the, um, one of the people that I met in Colorado was Derek C in France who went on to make the movie uh, Blue Valentine and he was sort of doing student films and stuff. And some of my friends, you know, we were hanging out with him and then people were like, oh, we're going to go shoot a movie. You know, do you want to be in it? And I was like, no, I have to go. I have to go work at IHOP or like wherever I worked at the time, you know, and like and it was just, you know, it was maddening to me. And um, it was, you know, it's, it's weird. Like for, it was a long road for me as a writer. You know, I mean, this I was like 20 when I was in Colorado and I was. 31 before I sort of started to get any real traction as a writer. So there was a long time there where it just felt like my life had been wasted. I'd missed every opportunity. Oh, going wow. So yeah, I mean, it was really sort of, um, I, you know, sort of, you know, bitterness, rage and scorn. And then once things started to happen for me, it flips the entire narrative. You know, it's Funny. like, if you see, you know, if you see the first two thirds of a movie, it's a very different movie than what you're going to see if you watch the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. So then what happens? You'd also said you went to grad school. Yeah. Is that so another experience? The, and also like, while all this is going on, uh, my drinking is getting worse and worse. Okay. Uh, you know, when I was, uh, I think I started when I was whatever, 13 or 14, but, when I was 15 or 16, when things started getting really bad, that's when I sort of found shelter in, in alcohol. And so I had sort of things continue along these two sort of divergent paths of when I was 21, I, I graduated summa cum laude from the University of Colorado, like big deal, wow. uh, started throwing out blood for the first time. Um, and you know, so it's, so how so these... you graduated, I can't pronounce it right. <laughs> Summa cum laude. <laughs> Summa cum laude. Yeah. Wow. You were also very much self-destructing. Yeah. And okay. And would you, at that point, like, did you save the drinking until like when you weren't, you know, like, would you still go to classes sober and work sober? And it was just like, then after the year, like duties for the day were done, like greatly indulge, or would you, you know, at that point, were you bringing it into like everyday life? 
I, I drank before class sometimes. Um, I was reliably hungover pretty much every day. And, uh, but I, I really didn't drink at work because, um, or I didn't drink at work frequently because I knew that, because I didn't have a safety net of any kind. And, you know, if I lost my job, then that was like, I could potentially be out on the street, you know? So yeah. it was like I had to, um, the, keeping my job was a, a means of continuing to drink. And do you, yeah. And that also like, do you feel like you're drinking? I'm sure there was multiple things of it, but like, do you feel like were you using your drinking as a sort of like escape? Is it, do you feel like, oh, you're just have the genetics of you can't stop or like, you know, like, were you drinking? Oh, I'm hungover. So now I'm going to drink again. Like, do you feel like what was motivating it back then? Well, I mean, the, you know, I mean, I talked about discovering Bukowski and, you know, for a young man who's sort of like, who feels out of place in the world, you know, the distant father, you know, there's not a great relationship there, sort of like, you know, no understanding or this, this disconnect between what the father does and what the son wants to do. And Bukowski provides you with a whole blueprint of who to be, how to live your life as just this like acerbic, misogynist, alcoholic asshole. That's why you're saying not to read his book. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. The, um, he accidentally like modeled a life for you that was not. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah, it was just like I was like, oh my god, here it is. So this is this is exactly who I will be, and I, I can't think wow. of a worse a worse writer to model my life on, you know. And it all, you know, it all sort of, um, you know, being hungover and like feeling like shit constantly. Um, that you know, um, horseshoed very very well with like my resentment towards you know my my father or my parents or like my resentment towards America for us like losing our house and for the other kids from having more money than I did. And um, so it was just sort of like all this resentment and rage and um the and also like the you know young people go through um you know sort of different iterations of like oh you know now i'm you know now i'm into death metal now i'm now i'm a goth now i'm a nerd now it's you know uh so and there is sort of like trying on these different clothes to figure out what you know what's going to fit what's going to stick and um you know, sort of listening to like Johnny Cash and Tom Waits and reading Bukowski, I was like, this, okay, here we go. This is it. This is who I will be. And, uh, and it was so dumb. And it took a long time to shape that. It's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption. I had to tell you slash remind you that I have a daily inspiration app available on the Apple App Store and the Google Play App Store. It's only $3.99. That's a one-time purchase. There's no ads. There's no pay for this also. $3.99, you pay once and you get hundreds of daily affirmations and powerful thoughts. Come to it at any time. You need a little boost in your energy. You're feeling funky. You're feeling low. And you can also set a daily reminder time in the app so that you can be reminded because we forget. We forget to do the things that make us feel better. So set your timer. Maybe it's 7 a.m. Maybe it's 11 a.m. Maybe it's 8 p.m. You'll get a little reminder to check the app. And I'm going to check mine right now. The card I got is by shifting my thoughts, I shift my quality of life. I get to choose how I see it all. What do you want to shift your thoughts about right now? Okay, now I'm going to hit the show me a card button again. 
Oh, I let go of all the suffering of my past. I am ready to make room for all the possibilities of my now. Ooh. Okay, one more. Feel your feelings. You can't hide from them. You can't push them down forever. Feel them so that you can move through them. Okay, and I got a last one that was a short one. I am magic. So all sorts of things, all sorts of affirmations, thoughts that will boost your mood, hopefully get you to think differently about your life, what's holding you back. You can save them with the favorites, hit the little heart button, you'll have your favorites. You can easily hit the share button and share as a text message, email, social media, on and on and on. Go get the app, Own Your Awesome in the Apple app and Google Play app stores. Okay, what happens after you graduate? Um, so when I was 21, I moved to New York City with uh, with 300 bucks. And, That's a um, pretty bold move. Yeah. What was, what so was your... So what was, dumb. What was your dream goal? What motivated that? You know, well, I, I had friends like Derek C. in France, um, you know, who were sort of starting to make their way as um actors and writers and working in film and and i, I was like you know I, I felt like i'd done everything that i could in den you know being in denver and that it was time to sort of take the next step. like you're gonna move somewhere yeah why not new york city when and i think a lot of young people have that fantasy that like oh when i move, when i get to la i will become who i am or whatever it doesn't really work that way but um, but it was, but moved to New York and I was like, okay, my drinking is really getting out of control. I'm going to apply to one graduate school. And if I don't get in, then I'm, I'll go to rehab. And I applied, uh, I applied to Columbia and I got in and I was like, well, uh, all right. I guess I'm meant to drink. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I was there for a couple of years and, um, you know, an incredible program incredible writers, you know, and I like. I don't think I ever missed a class, but I was hungover for everything, you know, and sort of like living these two, you know, these two lives that were defeating each other at every turn. And then, um, and then I finished my degree and turned in my thesis and like, and nothing happened. And then I was like, oh, I thought I was just going to magically turn into a writer with a book deal and like get discovered and all this stuff. And that, that's not how it happens anymore. You know, like you have to, you work your ass off and you like grind like little pieces on little blogs and stuff like that. And then build it up to be like bigger and bigger. And, but it's a long slog and, and nobody discovers you. You have to tell them, Hey, I'm here. I'm right yeah, here. It's so fucking annoying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I struggle with that as well, too. Yeah. Well, and it's so hard. Oh, I have to put myself out there. Like, and yeah. I would like struggle with that even. And I'm like, right. But of course, like now it like makes sense. But I felt like that. It, and then that made an internal struggle of like, well, who am I? You know, or like, well, if I am I not important enough or good enough or don't have enough to say if I'm the one that's saying, listen to me, I have things to say. But then it's just like now it makes sense. It's like, of course, like. How are people going to find you if you're not telling them about you and sending them bits and saying, I can tell you about that. I can write about this. I can whatever. But yeah, it's fucking hard because then you have to constantly get like struggling with the like, yeah, who am I to do this? To say? 
And, and it makes sense, you know, because like if, if you won't advocate for yourself, why would anyone ever advocate for you? Yeah. But, but also I think a lot of people who become writers become writers because they don't have a lot of self-confidence. <laughs> then they can just like escape into the writing. Right. But, um, but yeah, so when I graduated, I was just like, well, now I have failed and I'm just going to be, uh, I, Wait, but why did you think you failed? Oh, because you came out and nobody was like, Oh, we, here's a book deal. You're amazing. Like handing you things. So you figured yeah. it wasn't like you're not doing enough work. Just like if they're not coming to me, I must not be good enough or. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, this combination of like arrogance and insecurity of like, I'll do anything to make it as a writer except try, ah, <laughs> you know, except <laughs> I will drink this entire bottle to succeed as a writer, but I refuse to send my writing to anyone or to finish a story or, you know, the, yeah. Um, <laughs> so dumb. Uh, but um, I get it. I'm laughing not at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, well, I mean, it's funny too, like even now, so, you know, so many years past that I'm saying this and I'm like, man, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's like, no, 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 don't, don't go back there. Don't go back to that. The, um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I graduated, I got my master's and then like nothing happened. And I was just like, screw this. I'm going to go back to, uh, to, to just being a songwriter and I'm going to fall, I'm going to chase that dream instead. And then I like quit my jobs in the bars and bought a little, you know, Toyota minivan and lived out of that for a year touring nonstop. And how did you make that? So I'm guessing this whole time you had been like, you know, you would play your guitar by yourself or something or like, yeah, you would be, but you wouldn't be like out playing songs places. And stuff. yeah, yeah, it was just like personal. So now you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. So don't you get a minivan, you go on tour. I'm, I'm using fingers, which I don't mean to be rude, but also nope, you're <laughs> the, totally well, I right. was a touring live sound engineer for years that like went Okay. Played like arenas and amphitheaters. So that's why, but anyway, it's all tour and your style of touring was going to be, was much probably rougher. So yeah, what is that? But I'm also realizing that's fucking hard work, especially people don't know who you are. So what are you doing? Just like showing up at bars and places and be like, I can play music. Like, how are you getting yourself out there to go on tour? Even if you're living in a minivan, like it's, there's a ton of musicians out there that are saying, Hey, listen to me. So how did you do that? Like that also like takes a lot of gumption. <laughs> it was a lot just sort of like long distance homelessness. It, it was really like, you know, I mean, I did, I was always trying to book gigs in advance. And back then you were like sending out CDs and stuff like that. I've been fortunate to get a couple of like promising press quotes, but I did also do the things, you know, of like just showing up some nights and being like, Hey, I'm living out of my van. Will you guys let me open the show tonight? And like, Maybe at what a, kind of places? Like at, like oh, small anywhere from like, you know, I, I played like little like sort of punk rock squats and party houses and stuff like that to uh, to like some bigger, better venues, you know. And, and doing that tour, being on the road that much, you know, I mean, I opened for Metric and Broken Social Scene. I opened for the Decemberists. I opened for the Bronx. I opened for the Dirt Bombs. You know, like I ended up sharing the stage with a bunch of artists who went on to do huge things because it's sort of like if you're out there you're out there you know and I did 
I was able to sort of like write the songs that became, you know, this record. And I did attract the attention of this small record label. And eventually, like 10 years later, um, that record did sort of take off for me. But initially when I first put it, you know, when I came back from my like year of touring, I was just like fat and skinny and exhausted and like, just, you know, just eating fast food every day for a year and living on $10 a day. And um, so I was like, you know, climbing the three flights of stairs up to my girlfriend's place, I would be winded. And uh, so it was, you know, that was sort of, that was kind of miserable times. Like, you know, when I got back from that, that year of touring and again, I had that sensation of like, well, nothing happened, but I did get the songs and I eventually, you know, recorded the songs for uh, an album that ended up being called uh, "How to Make a Bad Situation Worse," and uh, and I that record, you know, it still like pays my cell phone bill every month now. <laughs> it's like great. And that came up. It came out in like 2006 or something like that. But um, also, so when you're on this like tour, are you create that you created yourself and just like going from city to city? Um, are you enjoying yourself while you're in it? Because you say you got back and you're sort of like nothing really happened. But like, and then also, if it's a self created tour, what made you be like, I'm going home now to whatever home was? The I mean, uh, yeah, there were just there burnout. Were, yes, there were. Like again, I touring is a burnout even when you're living on buses and staying in the nicest hotels and <laughs> yeah the um you know when you're when you're actually living in a van and living on ten dollars a day you know it's pretty miserable the um i did have some good times you know i would I, every once in a while i would have a magical night where i got on a show with a good band or a sympathetic band or not and i was able to play in front of some people i mean i remember like playing this like little busted gig in albuquerque and getting like applause breaks after a couple of lines in between songs. And it was one of those situations where like I was playing in the back and everybody was sitting at the bar in the front. And then by the time, you know, I was done playing, everybody had moved from the bar to the back, you know? And, um, you know, again, I'm still friends with some people that I met at, you know, at some of those shows and, you know, the, um, mostly, I think what I enjoyed was like just going out and getting drunk with strangers, you know, and I, I, I did really enjoy that, but also like getting harassed by the cops and like, you know, just not, not serious health problems, but I put on like 20 pounds and like felt physically disgusting. My back was a wreck, you know, you know, so I was just exhausted and like falling apart physically and emotionally. And then I think uh, my girlfriend's roommate, my girlfriend in New York, her roommate was moving out and she was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, I'm coming back. Got it. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that room and I'll pay the rent. And I had no idea how I was going to do it. And then I got hit by a drunk driver and she wrote me a big check and that's what paid my rent for the first month. Oh, so you said yes to coming back, got it, didn't have the money and got hit in your car or? Yeah, I was in Boston. I was your in my car. Van. got hit by a drunk just- driver. So you were okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was a girl going the wrong way down a one-way street in a big white SUV, and she, like, backed into my van. And I was like, "Uh, I don't want to call the cops. And she was like, why don't I just write you a check? And I was like, thank you. 
All right. So what was your next move in life you get back after that adventure experiment? The um, Then shortly thereafter, my relationship with my girlfriend fell apart. And my like drinking really got out of control. I got like fired from my jobs. I fought with the dude from the record label so that like we had finished the record, but then the record wasn't coming out. And like, you know, things got really dark. And then uh, I started playing bass in another band and um, a band called Beat the Devil. And that started taking off. Got a decent construction gig. I discovered uh, painkillers, opiates. So it was you know, sort of a familiar trajectory where things like started to get better and also got worse, you know? And then that sort of all melted down in like 2008. You know, I did, um, I did a couple more solo tours after the after How to Make a Bad Situation Worse came out and nothing had really changed. Uh, Beat the Devil imploded just before we were about to do sort of good things. But for that, like a good segment of time, you were just focused on, I'm a musician. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't writing at all. And then, um, and then I got fired from my job. Uh, the band broke up and then uh, the the like Lehman brothers financial collapse in New York happened all at the same time. I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to (laughs) die. Um, so I had a really sort of rocky winter there trying to keep my drinking under control and, you know, sort of, and failing, um, and trying to quit pain pills and, and, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And then finally I did a, uh, I, I did a European tour playing bass with a punk rock band And I was just drunk the entire time. And when I came back in the spring of 2009, I was like, I'm fucking done. And just got off the plane and like sobered up on my own in my apartment. And that was a miserable process. And um, I mean, that was, that was it for me. You know, 11 years later, I'm still sober. Um, That's uh, amazing. I know. I mean, I think it's so different for everybody. Obviously, I'm not a sober person, but I also don't struggle with it. But yeah, I know people that have had such different journeys with that. And then also people that are just finally get to their point or like they got a DUI and then that was the like wake up call. And then that made them never take a drink again. And like, um, but yours, you didn't have like you didn't get a DUI. You didn't like get in trouble. So that was just you really finally being fucking over yourself, I guess. Well, I got in a lot of trouble. But, okay, you did get a lot of trouble, but it wasn't like one a moment. It was just finally like, okay. It's yeah, time the, for me to- this is the thing is that like I had been getting in a lot of trouble since I was a kid, and that never precipitated that moment where you're like, okay, I'm pulling the emergency brake, I'm pushing the red button, everything has to change. And what happened for? And it took me a long time. It, I mean, it was I've been sober for like six or seven years before I was finally able to sort out exactly what had happened. And I think my epiphany was that no epiphany was ever going to come. It was just that my life was going to continue to get smaller and darker and more hunched in on itself and lonelier. Big cinematic bad thing was ever going to happen. I was just going to be like more and more defeated. And that things, and, and, and honestly, that drinking would never kill me, but it would just create a life for me that was so degraded that death would feel like a release. And that, that was when I was just like, stop the ride. I'm getting off. 
you know, I've, I've had enough. And, uh, and that changed everything. Yeah. So then what do you do now you're sober? I'm guessing life looks a lot different. It might be a lot harder in some ways because you probably have like a lot more to face and not escape. Absolutely. The, the other thing is the only resume that I had, um, was working in bars. So the only job I was able to get when I came back and had been sober for three weeks was working as a manager in a bar. <laughs> right. And in the long run, that's been good for me because I had to, I had to tell myself, well, there, there's no barrier in the outside world, right? That like, um, if I want to drink, I'll get a drink. Um, and I can do that any time of day, wherever I am in the world. The, the obstacle, the barrier needs to exist in my head which is, I don't drink, period, end of story. I don't fly through the air. I don't breathe underwater like a fish. I don't drink. It's not something I'm capable of doing. You know, I just had to get real, real clear on that. And, um, but then, you know, so it's like, you know, being a couple months sober and it was like the summer in New York and um, working at this bar, I felt like I'd survived some great catastrophe that my, like my life had been spared like but for what you know so that like I could ride my bike to work and have some you know somebody yell at me like well I'm taking my credit card to another bar I'm going to leave you a nasty review on Yelp what's your name you know <laughs> and then like biking home in the middle of the night you know to make I think I was making like 300 bucks a week or something ridiculous and then a friend of mine was working security at the bar. He got sucker punched one night and he got knocked out. We had to call EMTs for him. And then I was rattled enough that I like just took a cab home that night. And the next morning I woke up and I was just furious. And I was like, man, fuck these assholes for like knocking out my friend. I got to get my bike back. And it was like August. And I just put on my shoes, walked down to the street. And when I hit the street, it just smelled like, urine and hot garbage and like dead rats. And I was like, uh, no, I'm not going to wait here for the bus. I'm going to get my bike. And I just started running and I ran all the way into the city and I felt like I was dying. <laughs> Guessing you, uh, did not run prior. I, I did not run. <laughs> I had not, everyone. I'd like run away from the cops. You know, like, like, but once you lose them, you stop running. You know? <laughs> The, um, so, and it was like four and a half miles. And I really, <laughs> to think about what was happening in my body, it just felt like shards of glass were being like dragged out of my chest. You know what I mean? It was so, so painful, so exhausting, so traumatic, but I ran all the way there and I, I was like, Oh my, I didn't have a heart attack, you know? And I got on my bike and I biked home and then I looked it up on Google maps and I was like, wow, that was four and a half miles. Like, that's decent. That's like a real run, you know, maybe I can do this. So then I started running and it was just like running. And I was like, I'm going to sign up for a race, but I, but to do like a five mile race or a six mile race, that's not a big enough leap because I know now that I can do four and a half miles. So I signed up for a half marathon and, uh, and then I tried to train, you know, I mean, I was wearing like indoor soccer shoes and like running in like cutoff jeans and just like, just bad chafing experiences, <laughs> like running in these shorts that were just like a wet diaper. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
but I did the half marathon and I was still running at the end and I had like a decent time. And then, then I just sort of was like running longer and longer times uh, or lo longer and longer distances. A year into sobriety, I did my first ultra marathon. I did uh, 50 kilometers and then um, went on to do like several of those, went on to do a 50 mile race, uh, did two marathons in one week, you know, and. Um, wow. So besides like all these like, OK, I'm going to sign up for these races and challenges and you're pushing yourself like was raining, run, raining, was running also like changing how you like felt about yourself, how you thought about the world, like did it give you other thing or besides just something to do and push yourself for? Yeah, it, it changed everything. You know, the, it's funny because most of my family is pretty religious. I come from a pretty like hardcore Catholic family. And that's just something that like, I didn't get that gene. Like I, I never, never believed in God, never thought that was important. Never, never felt like anything in my life was lacking, you know, and, and you know, some of my aunts who I love, who are beautiful people would talk about their relationship with God with Jesus, with praying, with the church, and how it sort of permeated every aspect of their lives. And I just couldn't understand it. Yeah, you're like, huh? Are you, yeah, like, what are you even talking yeah, about? Yeah, I, I just, you know, and then I started running. And then I was like, oh, I think I get it now, you know, because um, in early sobriety, what uh, makes you angry? Um, very angry for almost no reason, you know, and it's like you have uh, all this energy that's, that's where your body just feels poisoned with it. So I would just like, I, these like furies would come upon me. And I would just be like, okay, fuck it, then put on my running shoes and just go out the door and just like run as long as I could as fast as I could as hard as I could until I stopped being angry. And then you just sort of come out of this fugue. And you look around and you're like, where the hell am I and how am I going to get back home? And then the car service guys in New York would see you and they would honk at you like, Hey, I'll give you a ride home, buddy. And then you're like, no, fuck you. I'm running back home. <laughs> you know? So it was, I, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of like running furiously, but then I realized after doing that for a long enough time that the fury could get me out the door, but to, to run, 15, 20 miles, I had to find something else under that. And what I found was like love, you know, the, um, I had a girlfriend at the time who was like, who was awesome. She was so supportive and she, she sort of, you know, just gave me a blank check for my, my old life. She was like, Oh, that's who you were. I never knew that guy. You are who you are now. You always do what you say you're going to do. You're there when you say you're going to be there you, you know, you work your job, you work hard, you know, she was like, I, I see no reason to judge you by things you did in the past. And um, just little things of like, you know, have, I had like a running, I shit, I still have it. She bought me a couple of those, the nice sort of like athletic, like running shirts that wouldn't destroy your nipples when you go on a run. And running in a shirt that she had bought for me, I felt love and I felt loved, you know, and and also when you start running, you know, so I did that 4.5 miles and that was the longest I'd ever run in my life. And then I did six miles and that was the longest I'd run in my life. And then six and a half. And, you know, so each, it was just like rapid growth and you're getting all this positive feedback and, and also like bumping into people around my neighborhood and they were like, whoa, I didn't recognize you. Like what, 
did you get younger? You know, and um, so people sort of started to recognize the changes that I was making in my life. And so, yeah, I mean, running changed everything for me. Trisha here. I'm bringing you one more brief interruption because I am so honored to be partnered with an amazing company like BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online platform that gives you a space to truly open up, be heard, move through, deal with what's coming up for you and what's holding you back. Yes, it's professional counseling with licensed therapists, but they make it super easy. All you have to do is go to trybetterhelp.com forward slash claim it. You will have you fill out a little form that gets you thinking about what is coming up for you. What do you want to work on? What do you want to talk about? You can also do this as a couple that you can do this as a teenager if your kids need a space to open up. That is not you because you know kids do and they're not bringing everything to your parents. So anyway, so they have this questionnaire you fill out and then they match you to licensed therapists that they feel will best meet your needs. And so then you get to choose from the ones that you match with. And you can also, if you're not feeling the one you talk to the first time or the second time or the fourth time, you can easily switch counselors. Because yes, not everybody will be the right match for you. I love this platform. I've been using it myself because of course I'm never going to tell you to try something that I have not done myself. I love, you can do video calls, you can do phone calls, and you can also chat in their secure messaging platform between calls or even instead of calls. Because I mean, we're all at home, especially if we have kids, it's kind of hard to find that time. But you can make the time choose, have a 30-minute call even, and um, yeah, use the messaging to talk between calls and to just like, they'll ask you questions and prompt you to like think about these things and what you're struggling with in your life and get you thinking even when you're not on that call. I love it. So again, go to trybetterhelp.com slash claim it. That will get you 10% off your first month. Their pricing is already more affordable than traditional therapists, and they also offer financial aid. So if you're at all thinking, I want to do this and I can't afford it, go check them out and look into the financial aid offer. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So then where, yeah, what, how else did it end up changing your life? Yeah, you, Because also at that point when you started running, you were still, you kind of were, the, what started was the managing the bar over that? Did you end up quitting the bar and starting something else? Like, did you do that for a while and you just had the running as the release? Like, how did then running create more changes in your life? Or like, when did you get back to writing or music or whatever? Like, did you have a point of like, okay, like, what am I, what else can I be doing? Or So I was, um, so I was still just working at the bar and running and playing music and like not making a whole lot of money. Just like living real close to the bone. And then my, uh, David Blum was an editor I had written for, um, you know, a year earlier where I'd written a, a couple of sort of like deranged dispatches from the road, or I was, wrote about the drugs that I was doing and stuff like that. Cause it was a, for a free weekly newspaper in New York. And he had been really supportive of my writing and, um, you know, saw potential there. And so we got together for breakfast one morning and, um, he was like, 
I'm working at Amazon now. We're starting this new, you know, sort of uh, publishing content, you know, expressly for Kindles. Um, you should really do something. You can make a lot of money. And uh, I said, well, you know, unfortunately, now that I'm sober, I don't have stories anymore. Like, you know, I, I I'm wake boring up. now. Yeah, I wake I'm up, sober. I do my shit. You know, I <laughs> go back home, and um, and he was like, you don't have one story left to tell and i was like well there's that one time in 2001 that i got shipwrecked and he was like mishka you asshole that's the story that's a perfect story so i had written in 2001 i got shipwrecked i got rescued in, in the bahamas i got rescued by the coast guard the uh they estimated i walked between 24 and 32 miles before i got picked up you sort of wandering on this desert island so I had written this story and it had just sat on my hard drive for like nine years. And then Dave was like, no, that's the story. You know, we want the story. So I went, I went back like over the course of a weekend and revisited this whole piece and sort of changed a couple of things and, you know, tuned it up here and tuned it up there. And I turned it into him and, uh, and he was like, great, we're going to run it. And I was like, I was like, maybe I can make $500 phenomenal this 500 bucks though so when it went up for sale i just sort of started promoting it to everybody i knew through facebook and twitter and band email lists and all this stuff my royalty check for the first month was seven grand and then uh for the next month it was i think it was eight grand you guys can't see my mouth dropped open how awesome is that <laughs> and it was like it, it was like a a 90 day pay or on the, so I waited until I got the check from Amazon. It was for like, I don't know. I think it was like $6,700 or something like that. And I went to my boss at the bar and I was like, yo, Mike, I quit. And he was like, what, why are you quitting? I was like, dude, look at this fucking check. And he was like, man, I'll quit too. You know, he was like, that's awesome. So, um, <laughs> So I, I was just like, okay, this is it. I got to take the plunge. I got to, you know, I got to be a writer now. This is it. I have my channel. Wow. And, um, you know, because the, the story had gone to number one. It had been a big hit, you know. So I, now we, they were sort of like, what's the next thing? And I met up with Dave Blum again, and I pitched him a couple different stories. And he was like, nah. He's like, the story you need to write is about how you went from being this, like, drunk, druggy shithead waster piece of shit to this like sober ultra runner who I see, you know, in front of me. And, uh, and I really didn't want to write a sobriety memoir. And I, I just been exposed to so much sort of like hack shit, you know, where they're it's like the person stops using heroin or methamphetamine or whatever. And then their, their life is just this sort of like peachy sunrise or, you know, sunset or, and I was like, no, it's not because my life is still incredibly complicated. And I, mm -hmm. I'm dealing with like these rages out of nowhere and like depression and, um, you know, the, and the sort of ghosts from your past that don't want to let you go. You're saying that getting sober didn't make everything in life to be perfect and never be hard ever again. Keep your voice down. <laughs> Wait a minute. There's challenges in life, no matter. Yeah. You... yeah. I went as long as I could without learning anything. And <laughs> I feel like I made it a pretty good, good long way. So, okay. So you did not, he wanted you to tell your story. You said, no, 
because you are you were what you had seen were this sort of like you become sober and everything's great and you're like mine i'm sober yes but and he was like, no, I don't want you to lie. He was like, I, I, I need you to tell your version of that story the way that you would tell it, you know, with all the like the filth and the profanity and the dick jokes and just, you know, tell me the story basically, you know? So I just sat down and I like wrote it to him and it was, um, you know, I thought it was just like so dark and so ugly that, um, that it would alienate everybody I knew and my, you know, all the people mm. I loved and that it would destroy this sort of new writing career that I had started. The first day it came out, it went to number one over Dean Koontz and Stephen King. Holy and shit. I, I was like, what? You know, and then it stayed like flickering in and out of, you know, number one for like four or five incredible months, you know, where I was just like crushing these huge checks from Amazon. I was so scared because I was like, I would get like $25,000. I'd never had $25,000 in my life. And I was like, if I, if I, if I fuck up now, this will kill me, you know? So I was, uh, I was just terrified, you know, but, um, but yeah, the long run, it was, it's probably sold hundred thousand copies now. You know, translated into uh, into Japanese, into German, into Spanish, into Polish, and uh, and that's really the story that like changed everything, changed my entire life. You know, I got a book deal from that. That set me up to to publish five more Kindle singles with Amazon, all of which were were bestsellers. I still get. I got a, a, just before we got on the podcast today, I got a fan email from somebody on uh, Twitter, you know, oh, I read the long run. It totally changed my life, you know? And um, so, and yeah. It was also that experience then where you said like, not only were you like feeling like, oh, I can't tell this story because it's not perfect. But then you were like, oh, you know, how's the people in your life going to feel about it or like stuff like that. So like to begin like, holy shit, I'm getting these $25,000 checks. Like I did, I'm wrote a bestseller, but also like, did it also create a lot more like worries, concerns, doubts of like now, like I just put all this out there and like, yeah, like family, friends thinking like that, like, was it challenging yeah. in that way too, to sort of be navigating I'm doing it. I'm a writer. People are loving what I'm writing, but also like, I can't, Oh God, how are people going to react to that? <laughs> or I, I felt like really naked and really raw because of it, you know, and now when I'm coaching students with their own writing, I tell them, you know, what I did with the long run is I put the entire world out of my mind. Like I didn't think about my mom reading this piece or any of my friends or anything. I just, I thought about Dave and Dave was, was a, my friend. He was somebody who was smarter than I was, who was somebody I looked up to. And so he was, he was sort of my ideal reader. So I wrote to him knowing that he would get the jokes. He would, yeah. you know, um, you and, weren't writing to like thinking like, how is everybody in the world going to perceive this? Yes. And, <laughs> and I also knew that Dave was a hard ass and that if I tried to, skip over something he'd be like no 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 no. go no go back and exposit that fully the thing that you don't want to talk about no we need to know about that so i wrote it to him i sent it to him privately and he published it and sent it out to the world you know so i think that's a trick that we have to play with ourselves as writers you know but then when it came out i i felt so like sort of terrified and ashamed of like everybody knowing all my secrets um but i 
Um, number one, I got so much uh, response from people and not just people who are alcoholics, um, but people who had like incest survivors and people who had been living with cancer and like um, people with eating disorders. And, it, it, you know, it turns out that human darkness is just fucking human darkness. And we've all done shit that we're not proud of. We all carry secrets. We all think we're not good enough. We all think we should do the dishes, you know, that like, um, and so for me to be that sort of naked and open and raw with my, my own disappointments and resentment, you know, I think it just, it really resonated with people. And, uh, the, the other thing is I had fought my whole life to keep these secrets. You know, I had this shadow self of like, locking myself in the bathroom with panic attacks and like, you know, trying to conceal from people, you know, how bad my drinking really was and, and you know, how bad things had gotten. And, um, I don't know, maybe this is insensitive. Maybe people will call me out for this, but the best analogy I came up with in my, my head was, Oh, is this what it feels like to be gay your whole life? And then finally come out of the closet and be like, this is who I am. This is who I really am. This is who I've been the entire time. And, and I've tried to hide this person from you in shame. And now, fuck it. This is me. This is who I am. You deal with it. It's your problem, basically. Yeah. So it was so like, liberating. That's what I was going to say. It must be like freeing and sort of like allow, like, you know, making you own who you are and the whole story of it and like, yeah. And that it not being like, I don't have to feel bad or wrong for this. It's sort of like a, probably allowed you to more accepting yourself and your whole journey. I maybe got project yeah, projecting. It, <laughs> the, there's always another phase though. There's always like the next thing with the new Wait, chapter. You don't have like an aha moment and then everything's better forever. <laughs> the, I mean, there's a series of aha moments and things getting incrementally better you know, because things are absolutely way better now than they have been for a long time. But then I be, you know, people wanted to sort of typecast me as this in, inspirational sobriety, you know, recovery figure. And they were like, Oh, um, all you want to do is run all the time. You know, you're addicted to running. And I was like, no, I hate um... running. I running is something I force myself to do because I know it makes me a better human being and that's what I'm trying to do. But I would just want to sit on the couch and like, you know, eat Fritos and watch TV, you know, or I'm worse. I want, to, I want to sit on the couch and watch pornography. You know, like I want to do all the worst shit. I want to get drunk. You know, I want to do drugs, you know, but instead I'm doing this thing that I hate running because I know that, by doing that, what the message I'm sending is I care about my life. I care about the world. I care about engaging in the world and I care about building a good life so much that I will even do this miserable thing of running. <laughs> um, you know, and then like after that phase, then I felt like I had to fight a little bit to reclaim some of the stuff from my old life where like I, I tried to stop swearing for a long time. Because I was like, oh, I have to be. Right. I'm this know. version of me now. Yes. Okay. And then I was like, no, that's bullshit. You know, I need to. Um, I, I didn't play any of the old songs that I, you know, that I had written for five years. 
And then finally I got to a point, and this is whatever, uh, 2014, 2015, um, where I started performing again, started playing the old songs, and I was able to sort of re reclaim or reintegrate the good things from my drinking life into my sober life. You know, I mean, I think that um, I love profanity. You know, you go back and look at Shakespeare, it's all fart jokes and dick jokes and like, you know, oh, your mother's a whore. And like the, it's, we live in this, in this puritanical country where we're like, oh, you know, this is high art and this is low art. But when you're in Europe or when you're some, you know, other, and I got to travel, you know, so much in my new life to see that, um, no, it's okay to. Yeah, I, I cuss a lot and I have a product line that even says, fuck your fears and fuck the shoulds, do the once, let that shit go. Like, so I, Fanny, and I have young children now. So it's definitely like, oh, okay, now, well, Trisha, when are you going to stop cussing because your kids, and sometimes my kids will, you know, say a word and I think it's cute. And, you know, and, and so this is another like should struggle. So like, oh, now that I'm a mom and I have young kids that can repeat me, I shouldn't cuss. And I just... I honestly like I feel like I don't care <laughs> I don't care like I think it I, I'm still gonna choose cussing and maybe I, I think I've maybe maybe done less but I I don't feel like it's it's wrong and like I'm gonna tell them like they can't you know don't say you know obviously like you're not I don't want them to say those words but it's also like it's a part of life it's supposed words like I mean, you know, it's just like I'm not like going to tell them. Yeah, these are good words to say. And oh, I'm, I am like, oh, don't say those to their, you know, at school and stuff like that. But it's just like, again, it's like I'm sure people are going to have a slapdash. But again, it would like come up as this like, judgmental thing all the time is like, oh, no, if I'm cussing and my kids heard me, this is wrong. And but I have to. That's another one of my sayings is like a judgment can only be. A judgment can only have power over you if it's something you to believe to be true. So I feel, oh, I'm a bad mom because I'm cussing in front of them. And then I go, do I really care? Do I really think that I'm a bad mom because they heard me say a cuss word? No, it's okay. Because otherwise then I'm going to carry around the shame and guilt of like, I'm a bad mom because I cuss in front of my kids because that's what you should not be doing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I cuss around my sister's kids a lot. And, um, you know, people are like, oh, are, you know, are, is your sister okay with that? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, uh, kids are little human beings with huge, incredibly fast uh, brains, you know, that are just soaking up all the information. And even when we think that we're not sending them information, we're sending them information. So the information that I'm sending them is when you're in the car with your uncle, yeah, you can say shit you know, and when you're at school with your teacher or when you're sitting at the dinner table with your parents, you don't say it, you know? And so like, you know, to try and teach them, oh, you never say these words. What we're teaching them is I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> Instead, you can teach them, yeah, if you're hammering something and you hit your thumb, yes, you can, you can drop an F-bomb. If you're, if you're out in the garden, if you're in the backyard, you know, whatever. Well, that's, yeah, like I would like be dropping something. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Or like, yeah, like one of them fall and I'm going, oh, shit. Oh, shit. And then like the next day, you know, my two year old, something's falling and she's going, oh, shit. Oh, shit. And I'm like, did you just say, oh, shit. And, <laughs> and I was like, you're using it properly. <laughs> if I could teach, if I could teach my cat to cuss, 
I absolutely would. <laughs> I'm not trying to teach them. Like, again, I'm not like really like overly cussing, but it comes out like in those moments. Oh, I think it then, would be adorable. Though. And, and I'm like, it's do it. And then I'm like, oh, no, am I wrong? Am I a terrible mom? Because my kids, whatever. I'm like, none's in my hands. So get them in the mind. Anyway, so you were coming like, yeah, okay, I'm allowed to cuss. I can still play these songs. Not like you've left this version behind of you and you're not allowed, like. Yeah, and I, and I felt to sort of, to try and sequester like my drinking self was, number one, it was shutting my, shutting me off from the, the biggest part of my life. You know, I, I drank, you know, in my early 30s. I had, at 31, I'd been drinking for 17 years. So I'd been drinking longer than I had not been drinking. You know, so to, to shut, to close off that part of my life was just to, I mean, I, I wasn't really a person. And um, so I wanted to be able to, I, you know, and a lot of it was like saying like, no, I'm in charge. I'm, I make the rules here. This is my life. I, those songs don't own me. I own those songs. I, I won those songs by walking every hard mile described in those songs. You know, I did that work. I did, I did some bad shit. I did some good shit. I did some dumb shit, but it's all mine, you know? And then also saying that there were things that I learned from being a drunk, like how to endure, how to suffer through a thing, you know, how to suffer through a tequila hangover when they're, you know, when you're working in a fucking supermarket or whatever, um, how to, uh, you know, how to just like, stay on your feet, how to keep standing when the world wants to knock you down, you know? And, and I, I wanted to bring a lot of that stuff um, from my old life into my new life, you know, and, and be able to use those tools to be able to use that alcoholic skill set when I wasn't drunk, you know, because <laughs> you, to survive as a drunk for that long, you develop all kinds of survivor skills, you know? Yeah. I mean, you were doing things, you're paying yeah. bills, you, graduated a word that I have troubles pronouncing <laughs> you yeah I, I never bring that up and I only bring because I, I feel like such an, like a bragger to say that but I I only, I only it's only interesting in the context that at the same time I was like right that's what I'm saying like yeah so you're saying like yeah it takes a lot to do those things plus be an alcohol yeah so yeah, so then yeah, so you're then now. Where are you now? It sounds like you're still writing. You're doing music still. You're teaching. You're yeah, doing I, all uh, the things. <laughs> I live in uh, I live in Phoenix now with my you know my uh, wobbly little cat and um, the I teach a writing workshop at Yale uh, every summer except for this one, of course. Like um, Yale. Yeah, that was really weird. They reached <laughs> no out. No big deal. <laughs> By they the way, out, I just teach this little class. They reached out to me through Facebook, and I thought it was a scam. I was like, this is ridiculous. Life but, is weird. Yes. But I've been doing it four or five years now, so I guess. That's amazing. The, um, and, uh, yeah, I'm still, writing, uh, I'm still writing music. I'm still playing music. I, I should have uh, two new EPs coming out this summer. And um, I'm still writing, still telling stories from my life. And the... Um, the newest thing that I have coming out now is I got uh, tricked and trapped into writing a self-help book about basically about how I quit drinking without rehab and now how I stay sober without going to AA, just sort of um, the, my sober alcoholic skill set, the toolbox that I've built over 
almost 11 years of sobriety now. Um, and, uh, what, what works for me, what doesn't work for me, why I didn't go to AA, what I, you know, what I think is valuable there, what I think needs to change. Um, I eat, uh, I eat hallucinogenic mushrooms a couple times a year. I've been a big outspoken proponent of them as not as a drug, but a powerful anti-addiction medication. Um, gotten a lot of pushback from people in the sobriety community for that. I feel like I've had a guest on before his name, Adi Jaffe, and he's the husband. I, I know him. Okay. Good friend. So yeah, he, yeah, has his own, like, I don't know if it's his own, but whatever he's, what is his addiction? I don't know. Basically he wrote a book too about like, yeah, like not, you don't have like, yeah, same thing. Like you not same thing, but different, but yeah, you don't have to do this. But I believe that, yeah, he might also say like the same thing about using medicinal mushrooms or like, I feel like he might do something like that as well. If, I don't know. If, if you but yeah, he gets around. a shit ton of pushback and yeah. And like, I, and I'm sure, and I think, and I totally, you know, understand that because of course, like I think alcoholism and addiction is such a big thing and it has to be unique for people. So like, yeah, some people legit prop like if AAA or if AAA is triple that service that comes to you. <laughs> if AA is like what works for you that's great like that like everybody yeah has you know like I said the person that I know who had a DUI and then never went back he's never gone to AA never you know done anything it's just like unique and for why not be sharing more ways and more words and more resources to support people because one thing might help someone that the other would not, you know, like if, if AA is not working, you know, like you just, I just feel like what's the point of shitting on other people's methods if it's work, if it's working for anyone. Exactly. And it has, I have lost unfortunately way too many people to addictions in my life. I was in the music industry for a long time and a lot of people were, a lot of them were in that. And so like, yeah, I'm, I'm all for anything that can save one more person's life. And, and that's the thing is, you know, I think we're, we rec- like we're able to recognize we're sort of at a point as a culture where we can see gender on a spectrum and we can understand that, um, right. you know, that people have different needs as far as their, um, their learning abilities or capabilities or disabilities, you know, that people are people that we're all u- as unique as our fingerprints and, uh, unless unless you have a drinking problem and then it's a binary, you're either an alcoholic or you're not. And if you're an alcoholic, there's one cure, there's one method that was designed 70 years ago for straight white uh, Christian men. And if you don't make it through that cookie cutter program sober, you're a failure. You know, it, it just doesn't make, to me, it doesn't make any sense in our sort of contemporary enlightened world that um, we still have this this chauvinistic, antiquated, very very Christian program, and that that that's the only thing. That's the only option. Um, you know, I mean, when I got sober on my own, everybody thought it was a big miracle. But then, having spent ten years sober and and you know talking to a lot of people, you know, on the road and in New York, um, I find that my story is not unique at all. But in fact, that my story is far more prevalent than people who go to AA and get their shit together. Um, most of us um, who have, you know, struggled with alcoholism, with addiction, just one day, like, 
come to our senses, like have that moment, whether it's like a a car accident or just a like, oh, I'm fucking done, you know? And then you you put the pieces together, you know, through trial and error and there is no perfect program and everybody like makes mistakes and I still do. Um, the, uh, but, uh, you, you find your way forward, you know, you make what you make mistakes and, but slowly and surely you grind your way forward. Awesome. I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. I have a couple questions that I ask everybody. Right on. One is I'm going to pull up a picture of, um, you know, like I said, I have a product line of different, like empowering phrases and there's, oh, Variety, can you see them? So these are all phrases that go on the keychain. So this is like what the keychains are. So if you could pick which of these phrases you most would like as a reminder in your life and why. I like uh, let that shit go because um, that's not something I'm good at. <laughs> I feel like I have an unmatched capacity. I can like, I can think of... Uh, in first grade, there was a girl named Emily who sat next to me and we had like wooden lockers that we sat in and she would always knock on my locker and it really, really annoyed me, really bugged me. So Emily, if you're out there, no, I haven't forgiven you. <laughs> so yeah, I need to let shit go. All right. <laughs> I will be sending you that keychain. Um, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Or basically like if you're like, I, I make up running <laughs> is one of them. Is there anything else that like basically like if you really can tell you're like in a difficult space, a hard space, like something you do to get out of your, you know, bed space or like, yeah, you're supposed to be maybe giving a talk or doing a podcast and you're just like not there. So something to sort of shift your attitude. My cat, my, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I sort of like lived on the road most of my life and lived this like really disjointed life. And I was always, uh, you know, we had dogs when I was a kid and I was always like, you know, just what crazy. I had the dog poster with all the breeds and stuff. And then, um, now I have this cat and she, she's like uh, special needs. She, uh, her brainstem didn't fully form, so she can't like she walks kind of wobbly and her head hangs off to the side. And like when she runs, it looks like two people in a horse costume. Like the, the front doesn't know what the back's doing. She's so cute. And she's so, she's so, um, she has no conception in her mind that she's anything less than perfect. So she'll try to jump on the couch and not make it and fall, but she never, she never gets bummed out. She never gets annoyed. Sometimes she'll just lay there and be like, well, didn't make it. <laughs> and other times she'll get up and, you know, and try again. But um, I just, I adore her and um, looking after her and taking care of her and sort of like making sure I had to sort of cat proof my whole house, my whole yard to make sure that when there's places where she tries to jump up, there's a thick uh, carpet there so that when she falls, she won't hurt herself. And um it's weird, you know, I, I feel like um, I always mocked people who are like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a parent to my fur babies, you know, and now I'm like, oh, shit, I, now I'm a, I'm a cat dad. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, she's my reliable, uh, you know, pick me up. Love that. 
Okay. Ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you, which every time I say it seems like a duh, but yet so often we're either chuck, stuck in our habits or routines, what feels easiest. Sometimes it's like easiest, you know, to stay on a path that's not working for you because it's the challenges of something new. So to apply that to your own life, what is easiest for me is to do blank. What is best for me is to do blank. Uh, so my... Uh, my mantra for a long time was just, uh, well, fuck it then, <laughs> you know, like if you're running 45 minutes late to work that, well, fuck it, just don't go, you know, or, um, you know, if something's not going your way, then just blow it up entirely. Like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it was going to, it was going to fall apart anyway. So for, you know, I recognize that that's my default. That's the thing that I I gravitate to normally and I have to like check myself, catch myself, sometimes go for a run before I do it, but then say, okay, I got to try again. You know I mean? To, uh, to seek a life as an artist, as a creative person, you're choosing a life that's going to be mostly failure. <laughs> <laughs> Sending out stories. Is mostly, yeah. It's mostly rejection. Sending out, you know, songs and records is mostly rejection, you know? So like only in infrequently, um, will you succeed? And I've had such a hard time with that. I still have such a hard time with that. Um, and so, yeah. I'm, and I, and that's still a correction that I have to make every day. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to try again. So it's easiest to be like a fuck it, give up, done yeah. with it, over it. What's best is to try again. Yep. Get back on the horse. <laughs> Take a deep breath, maybe punch the side of the house. <laughs> and like, All right, we're going to try this again. Awesome. All right. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe that our feelings of success, worth, fulfillment, being lovable, anything are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I will feel enough worthy, successful that it's something we got to claim for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day that it's not like if somebody tells you you're, you're successful and then click, I feel it. That yeah. it's, so what are you claiming for yourself right now? So I, this was years ago when I was still drinking, I was like griping to my mom, you know, where I was like, mom, like, you, you know, your life, your life is shit. You're working at a call center right now. You live in this dumpy little apartment and you're like, you're so happy all the time. Like I'm fucking miserable. Like what, what is it? You know, like what am I doing wrong? And she was like, well, I've discovered the secret to happiness. And I was like, well, shit, like hook me up. You know, like what are we, spill the beans, you know? And she said, Mishka, just be happy that you don't need to set up an if then if I get a new car, if I get a pool, if I get a pool for my pool, you know, that like all these things, if I, um, if, if this I book is a bestseller, if I yes, make this much then, money, what if then I'm I'll happy. be happy? Yeah. Just skip the middle man. Just be happy. You know, the, there's the, like the smallest things can, can make you happy, you know? Um, so that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to claim. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I had a clean t-shirt today when I went into my drawer. Like that's, that's a great reason for happiness right there. You know, the coffee mug that I'm, um, you know, that I'm drinking out of was made for me by my cousin and I love him, 
you know? So like there's, there's a million little reasons around you every day to be happy. And I just need to just look for them, just see them, acknowledge them and, and be happy or be happier, be less unhappy. Yeah. Stop putting your happiness out there somewhere and claim it for yourself. Yeah. As I said, sometimes it's a moment to moment choice. <laughs> it's easy to forget. You know, it's not like an epiphany where you're like, oh, now I know how to ride a bike. You know, it's, it's just, um, yeah, every day still working at it. Yeah. And it's, it's going to happen for the rest of your life, no matter how much good stuff comes. Just like, just a little tip, just a little tip, everybody. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say this to be like negative. That's more the reality is that that's the point of me having conversations with people that have done all these amazing things of, you know, achieved great things and that to see they still have doubts, fears, struggles, hardships. And so not meaning life sucks, but like, that's why you got to claim your joy, people. You got to claim it. You got to claim your life, claim that, claim your own rules, because otherwise you're just going to be living in the pain and the hardships all the time instead of celebrating the good. And, and, and the reason that I do have the, like, the good life that I have now, the rich life that I have now is because somehow when I was, you know, when I was young, when I was a teenager, something clicked and I, I did... I was able to make a choice at some point to just say, no, I'm going to do what I want. You know, I mean, I'm going to do what I, I'm going to find, I'm going to get what I need out of this life, you know? And man, I don't know when that happened, but I'm so grateful that I, that I, yeah. that I sort of stumbled upon that and then didn't forget it, you know? Yeah. I had a similar moment. I was like 15 and I really struggled with, um, I had a lot of physical pain that was undiagnosed and also just being 15 and my parents didn't get along and whatever. And I almost committed suicide and I sort of had my own epiphany for that. Where like, if I'm thinking about ending my life, then I might as well, like, I'm going to fucking live my life my way. So that is like when I was saying, I didn't, when I give up shoulds, that I was like, I didn't think I was somebody that really let shoulds affected me, but I did because, but yeah, like I, at an early age was sort of like, this is my life. Same thing. I'm going to do it my way. Whose rules are these yeah. and stuff and sort of, yeah. So, yeah. So totally yay agree. to us. And that doesn't mean that there weren't struggles along yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so, so, so much for sharing so much. We will definitely, we, I will. <laughs> Isn't it funny when it's like you run here? I'm like, sometimes I say like we when I'm like, really, it's me. I'm going to be writing the show notes and I'm going to put links to your stuff. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun. You're so welcome. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Again, what a story. What a life journey. For more about Mishka. Go to mishkashubali.com. Don't worry, that link is in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> if you can't spell it out, and he's also Mishka Shubali on Instagram, again, in the show notes. For full show notes, links to things that we talked about, go to yourjoyologist.com slash podcast, and you'll find all the episodes there. I always try to link out to things we say. If there's something you want to link to that I didn't, didn't put in there, please let me know. You can find all things me at yourjoyologist.com and I'm at yourjoyologist and I love hearing from you. I love hearing what you loved in the episodes, what you're most intrigued by. I love seeing you share the episodes. I love knowing what you think of the whole podcast and I would really love if you subscribed and left a review. 
I love reading the reviews, but the reviews actually help podcasts become more findable, searchable, all the good things. And as a gift to you, if you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to podcast at yourjoyologist.com, also in the show notes, and I'll send you a little gift for my product line. You know, just like I have every guest pick a keychain. I have mugs, I have journals, I have notepads, I have wine glasses. I'm not sober. I have keychains, I have the affirmation deck that um, all have different empowering phrases on them. So go to shop.yourjoyologist.com to check that out. And um, yeah, I love hearing from you. And again, I really love that you take the time to listen to these episodes because I know there's a lot of content out there to listen to and to choose. So thank you for that. As the last thought, I would love for you to own your awesome. That's the name of my affirmation deck and the affirmation inspirational daily thought app that's in the app store. Own your awesome. You can get it in both the Google Play and the Apple App Store. Um, in Daily Inspiration Card and the Affirmation Deck are called Own Your Awesome. So I want you right now to think about owning your awesome. What makes you awesome? Own who you are. Acknowledge yourself. We are all unique. We are all awesome. And if you know, like Mishka's story, I'm sure there are parts of his life and his journey where he sure did not think he was awesome. And look where he is now. Okay, so even if you're in a challenging place right now in your life, you can pull yourself through it. Your life can turn around. It's possible. Own your awesome. Start by giving yourself one compliment right now. All right, thank you again for listening and come chat with me at Your Joyologist.